two. One, two. Uh, yeah. Catch me outside. Did you ever did you ever oh. enjoy the catch me outside or was it cash me outside chick? No. What? I don't know what you're talking about. You really don't know what I'm talking about? No. Oh my gosh. Wow. I never in a million years would have thought you would have responded that way. It was this brief cultural meme slash phenomenon. This girl was on, I believe it was uh, Dr. Phil. And believe me, I do not watch Dr. Phil, but this clip, <laughs> this clip, this, this, this incident, this episode launched a trillion memes. And basically this little girl, I think she was 14, and she was just a classic bad teenage girl who had done all this shit. I don't recall what it was, but like having sex with adult men and, you know, having oh, all yeah. this cash that she couldn't. I'm, I'm 11 years old. I don't give a shit. You ain't the boss of I, me, bitch. I smoke weed. I don't give a shit. I'm mean. I'm exactly who I want to be. Pretty much that. <laughs> and so she had this one phrase. And I don't recall even what it meant. I, I have no idea what this even means. But she said, cash me outside. And this just exploded culturally. I mean, this wasn't that long ago. I'd say it's maybe two or three years ago. This is pretty recent. And it was just a, a phenomenon that was... Uh, I found it hilarious. Catch me outside. You got you, you. You have to go that watch. Sounds it. like are we? That sounds like are we gonna bang? Are we gonna fight? Are you? Are we gonna smoke weed? I don't know. I could see how that could catch off. I, I think that her intent was to tell Doctor Phil to go fuck himself. I think that was what that meant. Like, uh, you know, catch me outside of this shit, bitch. I just don't recall. But it's worth the two minutes you'll spend googling it just to watch the original mm-hmm. clip because it's actually pretty funny. But uh, yeah. we we certainly did not. We did not. We did not come to the podcast today to talk about that. So I no. apologize for that segue. I have to tell you a quick, a short, a short story. Last weekend, I went out on a date with this female who insisted I call them them. I'm sorry. <laughs> that them them and they. In the plural, because she because they weren't they their gender uh, determination wasn't settled yet. Well, they decided that they wanted to use they, them as their pronouns. <laughs> Just because? Just because they felt that way. That was important to them. And uh, it... Did that I extend to all other pronouns? So... Like, did you have to say, like, you guys and when you people and... <laughs> was everything pluralized? Um, everything was plural. And it was so... It was very annoying. Um, it was very laborious. And I fucked it up a lot. I kept saying she yep. and they kept correcting me. You know the, you know how it feels to do that, that on that whole date? You know the thing that you see football players doing where they have to pick their legs up in that square of like yarn that's up off the ground? You know, they yeah, use yeah, like yeah. ropes. Uh, training, like, training. That's what it feels like in a conversation. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> that's a great analogy. And I was, I, I was like, I, I and, and here's the thing. They're really hot. They were very, a, a very attractive I female heard that about woman. Them. Uh, really, really attractive. And so I was willing <laughs> to put in the work. <laughs> but I just thought you would find that really funny because it was, and they, they kept correcting me, but also were aware of how, non unnatural this was for me i mean this person is 22 so 
for 22-year-old Zoomers, apparently this is normal. What's a Zoomer? Did, did you know there's like an epidemic of girls? I mean, girls, I mean, uh, you know, young women, old girls, however you want to describe, you know, exact chromosome female identifying people between the ages of 14 and, and like 23 who are all all are, think they're trans. Did you know that? There's like an epidemic four th- up four thousand percent in Britain wow. over the last ten years. Wow, forty x pe- amount of of uh, girls who identify as being trans. Did you know that? No, and I could have probably gone the rest of my life fairly happily not without knowing, knowing it. it. Yeah, right, that, not knowing it. That's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. It's just nuts. It's just nuts. Like I consider I just find you. This- you are right on the cusp, in my opinion. Like you're just the perfect age, where I think you have one foot on either side of the line of sanity like you know there's many moments when i think oh brendan you know he's an adult and uh and he sees things logically and reasonably and he gets it and and then there are moments when i'm not saying this about i mean it sounds like i'm talking about you personally i'm not i'm talking about your opinions of things which is a different thing altogether really so and then and then i'll you'll say things that i think wow that's kind of crazy where did that come from and then I think, well, mm. it's because of your age, because I think you're just right at that level or that line. Which, what is your, what generation are you in? I don't even know what the fucking things are called anymore. X, Y. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> what are you? Uh, I'm a, I'm a millennial. See, I didn't even, I didn't even list, I didn't even list the right option as an answer. <clears throat> the right answer as an option. So you're a millennial, and uh, what, what yep. is older than you? X. Uh, what do you? Gen X, yeah, Gen X would be older, and so Gen X technically ends around 1980 ish. Okay. So if you were born after 1980, specifically kind of like 82 or 83, that's when Gen Y starts. So I was born in 86. I feel like if I had to sum up my entire worldview, there's this great line in the movie Lord of the Rings, and in the book Lord of the Rings. I mean, it comes from the book where where uh, the armies sort of of Mordor, which are the evil, the evil source in the whole planet of Middle Earth, is invading the lands of humans, uh, the country of Gondor. It's like coming to destroy all of basically human civilization. And there's a scene where this guy who's the head of this country called Rohan is mustering his entire army to come and try to stop them. But they see like all of this people, all of this like knights and vassals and stuff see that they're like, what's, you know, this army of Gondor is just too big. We can't stop it. And he has this, he looks at like his knights and he goes, Oh, we will die tomorrow, but we are going to ride nonetheless. And like, that's his whole thing feeling is he's like it doesn't matter that we're not going to win we have to the point is that we have to go fight i kind of feel like that's my <laughs> my like approach to most things in my life <laughs> that's interesting like i feel like it comes from this cultural moment from the late to mid mid to late 80s and early 90s that i grew up in where i'm like oh yeah everything is bigger and terrible and awful and you can't affect any of it but also you should try to do it anyway <laughs> Yeah, that's an interesting uh, philosophy from a philosophy major. Well, I think it's like it's interesting because I think that a lot of late boomer Gen X actually, I mean, I think they accurately assessed that they were like, oh, I can't really do anything to change the world that I'm in. So I might as well 
check out or burn out or just make money or whatever. Like it just the, the coping strategy, I think, is actually a lot healthier in the sense that you're like, look, I can't do anything. So I might as well just focus on trying to live a decent life in whatever way I can kind of figure out. But I feel like millennials have this different feeling where they're like, your life isn't worth anything unless you change something, which I think is actually a kind of unhealthy amount of I think that's uh, it's unhealthy to believe that, you know, like uh, like the world isn't good if I don't change it. Like there's something weird about like that exact concept. Do you, you see what I'm saying? I agree. And in fact, I, I've been waiting to interject with just this one thought and I'm glad I waited because what you added there at the end makes this even more relevant, I think. As as we've discussed a bunch of times, you know, I'm I've read the Bible cover to cover probably ten times and in fact you and I have discussed this basic point before, I think. The the entire book of Ecclesiastes is uh, it, it's I, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I don't recall if it was written by Solomon. I think it was, and King Solomon was the richest man in the history of Earth at that time. Do, do you know who yeah. he is? So he, he um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he'd amassed all this wealth and literally had kingdoms and harems and, you know, all this material possessions. No one had ever accumulated the kind of wealth that, that he did. And at the end of all that, he says, or, or it's said about him, again, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't recall which it is exactly, but the point remains, which is, he says, in the end, fate and chance happen to everyone. I mean, there's, we're not in control, is sort of the point of it all. We're not in control, yeah. and stuff's going to happen. You know, there's a time a time for everything, a time to live, a time to die. You know, that whole stanza of, oh, yeah. you know, that's yeah, yeah. All, quoted all the time. And to all, everything, there is a season. Exactly, exactly. And so, but the, the grand summary of the whole the whole book of, of Ecclesiastes is eat, drink, and be merry. Make the best of what you can because you're here one minute, gone the next. Life is short. Life yeah. is fleeting. And again, the time, the line that sticks to me the most is that the time and time and chance happen to us all. So, you know, good things happen to you kind of randomly or not. And mm. so I think that sounds, that can be, t you know, you can view that, that point a variety of ways. You can view it negatively or positively. You can view it negatively, which is what you were basically just, I think, saying in terms of it's just sort of a, a lousy attitude to have of I can't control anything, life sucks. Or you can say I can't control anything and therefore I'm going to make the best of whatever I have and enjoy it the best I can. And it's funny because yeah. the older I get, and it's taken me, you know, one of the things I've learned about life, because I haven't learned that much, to be honest with you, I don't think, but one thing I've absolutely learned, one thing that I'm really confident of is that wisdom and the correct perceptions on things take a long time to arrive for a lot of people, including me. You know, like you think when yeah. you're, when you're, when I was 18, I thought I was a genius. When I was 28, I thought I was one of the smartest people in the world. When I was 38, I thought I was pretty smart. When I was 48, I thought, you know, I'm pretty average. When I was 58, it's like, I don't know a fucking thing. And I'm still the same mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. It's just that I've gained yeah. more life experience and I've lived through more things. And and again, that sounds negative, but it's actually not. It's positive because in the end, the realizations I've come to are exactly what I, what the book of Ecclesiastes said in terms of now. I'll give you a real practical example. Is As I've said multiple times on this podcast, my mom now lives with me. And she and I, have, of all people, you you can attest to this. She and I have had a very tumultuous relationship my entire life. We've, we've, we've fought, oh, yeah. yep. we have fought more than we haven't. And I mean, by a multitude of, you know, 5X or 10X, like for every 
great time we had together. There were five or ten that were lousy, and we're just—it's just a chemistry thing. We just, we just, we're, we just—it's like the Siamese fighting fish. You put two of those in an yeah. aquarium, and yeah. one of them's going to die. The, the, you two, the two of you, have characteristics that tend to rile each other in a certain type of way. Yeah, we basically have the same personality, and yeah. so that this type of personality does not mix well with this type of personality. So anyway, uh, because of this perspective and maturity and whatever, maybe a little bit of wisdom that I've accumulated over the years is that now that she lives with me, those those numbers have flipped completely. And so now for every bad time, and we still do have bad times. We've had some really bad times, a couple of them uh, since she moved in here, but I mean, literally two or three. And yeah. for, for the two or three bad times, we've had, you know, 400 really good times. And I actually think about this almost every day as she's about to arrive here. She shows up here most days between like 6 and 7 p.m. We have dinner. We play Yahtzee. We play Scrabble. She watches her shows, which are not my shows, mm -hmm. and I typically watch yeah. some of them with her. But the point is, as I'm sitting there watching some TV show I don't care to watch, I'm thinking, you know what? This is, this is really wonderful. This is wonderful that I'm able to be here with my mom in her latter days. She's 87 years old. Who, who knows how much longer she'll last? And, yep. uh, and I'm, I'm really appreciating it. I'm really, truly, I'm thankful to God that I have the yeah. opportunity to do exactly what I'm doing there, which is to spend time with her after all those years. You know, I'm talking, you know, I mean, past the age of 50 for me, where I just thought we're never going to have a relationship. We're never going to have a, a close relationship. It's just not going to happen. If it hadn't happened by now, It'll never happen. What? And yet, yeah. and yet, here we are. And I really do attribute it to that exactly what we were just talking about in terms of just it's a it's just a philosophy perspective thing. And it's funny because you know I often poke fun at you to your face and on this podcast about <laughs> the fact that you were a philosophy major because I think it I think it was a yeah. terrible decision from a from the perspective only from the perspective of a capitalist. Which is yeah. what the, we, what the know, fuck were you thinking? So let me, as a human, yeah, hold, as a human, yeah. I thought I think it's I respect the hell out of it. Well, let me. Uh, so hold on, I got like three things to respond to that you because you just said a lot of stuff. I think the first thing is you you said as you get older you realize how little kind of you know. I think that's perspective. You know what I mean? Yep. And it's just interesting to me because you were so you recited Ecclesiastes and you were talking about how someone chooses to live their life in the face of this insurmountable question and the fact that we're all, you know, life is, the world is chaos. We're all going to die. Yep. Like whatever you want to call that, the existential question. I just had a nihilist uh, who's a friend of mine on my podcast, The Madness Continues, and we talked about, he's a, he's a nihilist. He wrote a book that's kind of, I don't want to say it's famous in the world of philosophy, but like, you know, should such a term apply to philosophical circles? He wrote a book that amongst nihilists is well known called Laughing at Nothing, Humor as a Response to Nihilism, where he said that, you know, he talks about humor as a proper response to the fact that we're when we face the existential question. And I want to talk about that in a second because we talked about coronavirus and his his thoughts about it as a philosopher of nihilism. But let me stop you for a second. I, I just did. say for those who don't know what nihilism is, would you explain that? Because I'm sure that there are some people who don't know. Yeah, so nihilism is a it's a term that's kind of loaded. So I should just say that right at the front because nihilism is a term that that basically means nothing is true. Like nothing is true, nothing is real. 
Um, it, it can it can be applied in a number of different ways. People use it derisively by saying like, oh, you're just a nihilist. You believe in nothing like you have no beliefs. You have no compass. You have you know none of this. But but the way that John Marmish, who's the philosopher I spoke to, talks about it he, is, is he just is like, look, there's no uh, let's use the Bible as an example. You you can read the Bible and you can even have divine mystical experiences. You know what I mean? But there's no. There's nothing. There's still a bridge of faith that you have to jump over. One hundred percent. You have to like leap, leap over. Correct. Yeah. Soren Soren Kierkegaard calls that the movement of faith, and he the point that Soren Kierkegaard was making when he wrote um, a lot of his writing in Denmark in the nineteenth century, early nineteenth century, was basically that people who have real faith have doubts, and they ha- and they overcome those doubts with belief. So the point of having faith, according to Soren Kierkegaard, wasn't to say, oh, I 100 percent believe it and I never question it. He was like, you, sh- you sh- doubt is part of faith. That's the person who really has faith is the one who has doubts and yet also believes. I agree. Um, that's it's just kind of like if you take a look at the Gospels when Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe where it's like P- Kierkegaard would take issue with people who. With blind faith. Don't he would a, take issue with complete yeah. blind faith. Yeah, there you go. That's exactly it. And so John Marmish says, I mean, the way that he describes nihilism is he's like, you will never know. You will never be presented with evidence strong enough that you go, oh, here's the undeniable meaning of reality. And that's what he would describe as nihilism. And he says that when you're confronted with that feeling when it's like the world is chaos things are uh, do things have meaning or don't they whatever that moment happens to be the appropriate and correct response is humor that's what he thinks and so that's why he wrote that whole book about it which is fascinating he's also the editor and creator of one of the only uh, of actually the only international philosophical journal of humor um which is pretty cool that is cool and He's a, he's a very fascinating guy and and uh, I was neat to get him on the podcast but it's I mean I could go off all day talking about nihilism um I wanted to say that there's like three points I wanted to respond to but the thing that I think I want to say next is just that you know you having time with grandma it's like one of these strange circumstances where it's like the world is like big and chaotic and life is short but also bizarrely long yeah and it is it's like strange because why would you have ever known that that would be a thing that would work out in your life and also would work out really well and you liked it and it's good. And that's like it's just a fascinating thing that like that's just the way life is, you know, and you, you can choose to, you know, you're, you're talking about Solomon is fascinating because you can in the face of this kind of nihilism, you can choose to fight it. Or you can choose to, which means a variety of different things. You can choose to believe in maybe bullshit like that you don't have evidence of. Like, oh, there's a, you know, guiding. Like Napoleon Bonaparte believed that he had a star. Like he believed that he had an actual star in the sky that was divinely driving him to success. Which like, I mean, looking at that guy's life in the 19th century, you know, in the 18th and 19th century, there's probably no other sole human being who you could say has a better made a better case for the fact that life and fate was divinely working its way out in his favor. But also it's like he died young ish and in complete isolation of stomach cancer 
and was all the people who he had ever been close to in his life were completely had abandoned him. Mm. So like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. But the point of me going through that is just to say that like, there's a kind of resignation or surrender or however you want to think about it that occurs when you encounter this like nothingness, maybe at the center of life, this nihilism. And I think that every generation, every group of people has to figure out what to do with that. And it feels like the millennials are choosing to, we're going to remake the world in our image and, and be iconoclasts and, you know, destroy, uh, you know, well, retail stores in the last few months <laughs> yeah <laughs> and like statues but like that's the feeling that they have is they're just like oh we're just gonna go that's what we're gonna do because this is the point of life is to remake the way that we in- interact with each other and our image of the ideal way that things should be and then there's another generation gen x who's like yeah look there's no point in fighting all this bullshit let's just try to have a good time and fit in with the way that it is and like those are each of them are appropriate responses to the same thing, probably given the cultural context in which those people were raised. Like the millennials were told by their baby boomer parents that they could do anything, that it, it, all, all doors were open for you if you if you worked hard enough. And I think that that's it's strange just to digress for one second on this point is it's it's strange to me, Uncle Mike, because I think that the millennials part of what is going on with this like you know, all these protests. First of all, it's not just millennials. It's a lot of Zoomers. Uh, what, is a, Gen what is a Zoomer? The, okay, okay. Yeah, Zoomers are the youngest ones. And, uh, well, not the youngest. I mean, they're just the right. the youngest sort of culturally active force. Right. Um, the next generation. But a lot of people who are out protesting are millennials. And I think that a certain amount of the millennial anger comes from a feeling of generational betrayal where it's like you were told all you have to do is work hard and go to college and then everything will be fine. And then you like now learn that was oh, actually lie. it's not the case at all. Like you can yep. go to college, you can get a master's degree, barely get a fucking job, not be able to pay your bills, never be able to afford a house and that and then carry that debt until you're dead, basically. And I think I think that a certain amount of that rage is what's kind of informing a lot of these protests just had to mention that at the end of this i think that i think that makes sense that makes a lot of sense and it's funny because i've said many times you know i've been very outspoken like on facebook and places like that with you know my view of snowflakes and you know this pansy ass generation of young people but i'm also in the same breath wait wait. i haven't heard anybody say pansy ass in a while (laughs) let me let me finish let me finish and yeah, I always, within that context, I will always say, and I don't blame the kids. I do not blame those kids. I blame their parents. I blame their parents for lying to them, you know, because it's just this this permissive and what you just said about, you know, the things that kids are told, it's just not realistic. It's not honest. It's not, you know, you do not get a trophy for just showing up in the real world. You don't. Yep. You don't. And in fact, sometimes... You can do all the right things. You can say all the right things. You can work hard. You can do everything that's asked of you, and you can still get fucked over. Yep. I think you think yeah, that's and- happened to you. I know it's happened to me. And yep. but but because I came into the situation, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I wasn't like crushed and devastated when those things have happened to me. I they they have been they have been soul crushing when they have happened. But at least I at least 
the context in which it happened for me psychologically was was preexistent. You know what I mean? In, in mm-hmm. other in other words, the fact that it happened didn't just hit me like a meteor. It was more like, well, that sucks because I'm just one of those people that kind of got fucked. But you know, it wasn't like I didn't understand that could happen. I knew it could happen. Yeah. See, and I think there's a lot of ki- a lot of younger people these days who, you know, imagine the double whammy of they get fucked over and they didn't even think it was possible. You know, to me, that's a far, a bit much harsher and harder psychological trauma to endure. Well, so that, okay, so it's interesting that we're talking about nihilism because the situation that you just described is what Nietzsche would describe as true nihilism or what he was writing in the 19th century. He called European nihilism because that's what the kind of nihilism that was occurring at Europe at the, in Europe at the time. It what it what it means specifically is the values that you held the values that you have been holding whichever whatever you thought was valuable that you were holding like truth or like hard work or whatever right. through the use of those values not not in spite of them but through the use of them you've come to realize that they're they've they're meaningless that like hard work is a good value until you're working so fucking hard and you can't make ends meet and you realize, oh, I'm in a horrible situation because I've spent the last 10 years of my life working nonstop to get a degree, to get another degree, to try to get a job. And here I am in a ton of debt and in an economy that's not working where I'm trying to piece together paying bills from two to three different jobs. And if I had just not worked hard from the beginning, I actually would be in a better position now than if I hadn't Yep. Then if I had you hadn't worked hard. Yep. I mean Nietzsche called that like a, a very dangerous situation. If you find yourself in that position, you lose the ability to construct meaning in your life. Like the narrative of your life no longer makes any sense, and the world is incoherent because you're like well, you've been I living a lie, and you things. now re- you've been living a lie, and now you realize it. Yeah, you've been living a lie a whole time, and now you've realized it. And and the the sense of like deep cultural betrayal, I think, is really there. You know, thousands of people are in this situation, especially in my generation, and they feel you know very frustrated, and they feel confused, and they're really not sure what to do. And that's why a guy like Bernie, who's like, yeah, we're just gonna get rid of all college debt, like becomes like super appealing because you're like, yeah, that's the way out. It's just get rid of my debt so I can have a decent life again because some of these people, you know, there's just, they're never going to own a house because like they just don't, yep. there's just no way they're going to be able to pay this debt down. Yep. And that's why these things are like appealing to these people. But it's just, it's really difficult because they can't construct any sense of reality um, on, in terms of like what's happening around them or why they're in this circumstance or, or whatever. And um, it's interesting because another one of my favorite philosophers, a guy named Slavoj Zizek, who I've talked about before, he does a really good job in this documentary that he was in called The Pervert's Guide to Ideology, uh, which is just the name. He has a whole bunch of books and things that he produces called The Pervert's Guide to XYZ, just because mm-hmm. he's a that's his sense of humor. Gotcha. Um, Anyway, he in it, he talks a lot at length about what someone living in the Weimar Republic in Germany must have perceived about the world. And it just sounds a lot like what a millennial might perceive about the world today, where it's like they can't make heads or tails of anything. And all the things that they were told were valuable growing up are now completely not valuable. In fact, the opposite. And I just 
it's so weird. I mean, think about it, just the concept. So I just got done. I know I'm, I know I'm ranting, but just, just let me kind of roll with this for a second. Sure. I just got done with a 14 part series called seeing white, um, on scene on radio, uh, because a relative of ours posted this thing on Facebook and I thought, you know what? I should listen to this. I'm constantly, I mean, I have a lot of black comedian friends and we talk about blackness and whiteness and different things like this. And I thought, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to go watch this thing. Listen to this, this, um, you know, whatever I'll go, I'll agree to feel guilty for 14 hours <laughs> to, to learn about wow. what whiteness means in my life. So I go listen to this 14 part podcast. And at one point it was very interesting. There was a, you know, played audio from a, a, um, one of these seminars, you know, they talk about these like diversity and inclusion seminars that like people have to take. Well, this was recorded back in 2017. And so three years ago, they recorded one of these that was taking place at a community. It was in like Charlotte, North Carolina, a bunch of people who worked for the city of Charlotte had to take this diversity and inclusion thing. And I mean, the whole thing was about the history of white oppression and white advantage and the historic oppression of non-white peoples and i mean there's just documents and all kinds of like just tons of shit it's just an overwhelming amount of evidence that basically goes hey white people were really shitty to everybody who wasn't white in america for 400 years that's the thesis of this entire presentation amongst other things that's neither here nor there we can argue with that or not argue with it it doesn't matter but the point of me bringing it up is that they did interviews with these people after that seminar, some of the people who sat through it. And there was a woman who was like sitting in her car, like crying and she's married to a black man. She has, you know, her children are mixed race. So technically they identify as people of color, her children, I mean, and she's white and she's crying because she's like, I don't think I can I don't know how I go through my life being proud of who I am now because I feel like there's just this horrible history of like white racial oppression, which let's just agree that that's true. I don't think there's any disputing that there was a whole history of this thing. The reason I insert that into this conversation is because I think we're living uniquely through an era in which there's a group of people who I would say are millennials and potentially Zoomers who are having to take values that they were explicitly taught as children and grow up with them and now try to transmute those values into a world that actually didn't believe the or practice the values they taught them as children, but wants them to practice. And I feel like this is like this very strange nihilistic situation where it's like, how do you walk around as a white person in America when you've been told from your childhood that people of color are all oppressed and also now here's a ton of evidence for it and all of this shit. How do you walk around as a person in America who's taught hard work is super meaningful and valuable and you should do it except you've worked hard your whole life and now you are in a position where you're unemployed and you're not making any money. Meanwhile, Steve, you know, a part of me, Jeff Bezos is like $30 billion richer since May. Like, I, I don't know, man. I think it's like, this is part of why I think this like, we're living through this like cultural moment that is very uh, – uh, this is why it's rough for everybody. Rant over. Uh, well, you said so many different things there that I really am – I'm kind of uh, like a deer in headlights and I really don't know what to say. I guess <laughs> the first thing – honestly, the first thing that occurs to me is – and I'm not, I'm not attempting at all to argue. Uh, as you said, it's neither here nor there when you made the comment about whether 
you know, whether it's true that white people have oppressed and been shitty to everyone for 400 years. Let's assume that is true. Since when are people living in one year responsible for what their ancestors did at some point in the past? I mean, because we can't just apply that to one race. If we're going to do that to one race, we got to do it to everybody. And the whole, the whole logic behind that is so outrageous to me. It's so illogical. It's so, it's, I, I find it crazy. It's like, okay, so it's true. All right, all that's true. And I don't think it is, by the way. But let's assume that it is. So fucking what? And I don't mean to say that because I don't give a shit. I do. I actually do. I care more, much more than I sound like I do. I really do. I mean, part of me is just like a need. But uh, you're like, what do we do now? Yeah, you know, what do we not? I mean, like, kind of the, so, uh, but yeah. I mean, but, and, and we can't, we can't do this selectively. We can't just say, well, only this race is responsible for their past transgressions. It's got to be everybody. So now we need to go do some research on everybody. And then I would say, why are we doing research on anybody? Because all we can control is what's happening today. We can't, we can't fix. It's all water under the bridge. Again, not, yeah, to, I, not to throw it away, think, not to suggest that, yeah. there, that there aren't, you know, that there aren't legitimate grievances on the parts of people. But again, sure. we can't just pick one. I, here's what I think you're saying. I, look, it's not that easy, and it's, it's impossible. also it's impossible. Yeah, it's you're, it's 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 maybe functionally impossible. And right. I think that part of what I would, I just want to toss this in here because th- th- just this thought, which is that I think it the solutions that I've heard. So first of all, it's like I think that it's you know the historical. I just want to pit, pin two things, I guess, while I make this quick point is that the historic oppression of people of color in the United States has happened right up until like the 90s, depending on where you've been in the country. And a lot of what has happened has been an attempt to destroy the generation, the ability to accumulate generational wealth in those communities. And I think there's enough evidence for that to believe that that's true. But to your point, and I just want to make this clear also, that's neither here nor there in the sense that like the solution to maybe this problem and then we can kind of move back to the main point of what we were talking about in terms of nihilism. But like the solution to this problem, it cannot be the case that the solution to this problem is to go through exhuming all of the bodies of the past and trying to examine every single one of them or every situation in which some racial grievance has occurred by the people in power who are white people to exploit the others. It cannot be the case that that's the solution because both one it's a super huge waste of fucking time exactly and well-meaning reasonable people will not want to sit and go through feeling the guilt and potential shame of decisions that were made hundreds of years before they were born and they had no part in but now are tacitly complicit based entirely and only on the color of their skin and the potential for them having to for them receiving let's say, a racial bonus in America today based on that skin color. I, I just don't think that's a solution to anybody's problems. I think that what is a potential solution, and I think this is what you were under, maybe in the subtext of what you're saying, is to examine how do we just move forward in a way that makes sure that everybody in this country has an equal and fair shot at making some shit happen and get rid of whatever institutional things are in the way of that happening. And... That's a conversation that's worth having, but I don't think anybody who's in the business of having trying to have this conversation today is really nobody's going on CNN trying to have that talk. You know what I mean? Right, because again, 
I'll hearken you back to all that you and I, because we learned it together, learned from Sam Harris. Yeah. And that that has, I mean, I, I can't think of too many, you know, pop, not, not pop culture, That's that was the total wrong choice of words. Uh, I don't know what term to use. Just recent bit of information, article, podcast, whatever. I can't think of any single resource that has affected me as much yeah. as that one podcast called cultural relic yeah <laughs> yeah uh, it's called uh, can we pull back from the brink isn't that what it's called can we pull yep, back that's from the, the brink? name yeah so you know there was we we actually had two separate podcasts now we're talking about it on a third podcast uh, about well, what we learned i think it's worth talking about on three podcasts it absolutely is because it, it it really it's relevant to everything being discussed on the main stage of america right now racism Police bias, you know, systemic cultural racism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I've said this to you before, I'm pretty sure, but sort of what rankles me the most about this whole conversation is not that I have a problem with the conversation at all. I don't. I really don't. But I can't, I can't erase the knowledge that I've accumulated throughout my life, which is I've watched racism decline, 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 decline my whole life until Obama got elected, and then it became, you know, every, everything became about race. And before him, but just, I mean, I'm not saying there wasn't racism. I'm not saying that at all, I, at all. But I'm saying racism was on the clear decline. There was no tension, I've said this repeatedly. I go to my gym, you know where I live. It's one of the most culturally diverse places in America. I go to my gym and there's a whole bunch of African-Americans, there are Middle East people, there are Asian people, there are people from everywhere on the freaking planet, there are Russians. There's all these different people, and there's not a hint of tension anywhere. Fast forward, yeah. fast forward from probably one year into Obama's administration to now, and it's a whole different world. Today, I'm out riding my bike, which I did right before we started recording this. And I'm riding my bike, and I'm approaching, and I look up, and I see this African-American woman who's walking. And... And I'm riding my bike toward her, and absolutely nothing happens. Nothing. But I swear to God, as I'm approaching, I could just feel my body tensing. I could feel myself. Yeah. And I knew I mean, this is probably like a 55-year-old woman who anybody who's any, – any person living anywhere that I would ride my bike is somebody who is, you know, socioeconomically privileged. You know, somebody sure. – this was, this was at six mile in – and uh, Sheldon, you know, the houses over there are between, say, 700K oh, yeah. and a million five. This and, is a successful black woman, yes. probably. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolute, no, no question about it. She looked that way. But I just felt tension as I rode my bike past her. And I thought, you know, I'm not racist. I'm not at all. I doubt she is. But yet I, I hated the fact that I had any feeling whatsoever. The fact that I thought, like, okay, oh wow, I wonder what I was thinking. This, wonder what she's thinking. I, I'm going to say two things. One is I really encourage you to actually go listen to the Scene on Radio podcast because I found it far more even-handed and really interesting than I thought I would. I I was prepared to really not like it. I mean, and there were parts of it I argued with for sure. I mean, it, it's not like I listened to the whole thing and agreed with everything, but. I, I was actually really surprised. Let me describe this accurately. It's a podcast series created by a NPR dude. So it comes off like liberal. I mean, it comes off as really well, liberal. But I was I was still yet surprised at how even handed this guy was. 
because it was really, I mean, it really, it was really well done. And it pointed out a lot of stuff that I was like, yep, that is actually how I feel as a white person is like, is this situation as they describe, because what you just described, he describes in a handful of episodes, including one in which he's basically almost assaulted by two black kids in, right. in uh, Philadelphia. He talks about like this tension and a lot of the, this kind of experience of being white. And he it's interesting because he talks with he has a dialogue through the whole thing with his black friend who's a professor in Philadelphia. And they, he talks a lot about that specifically, which is that I'm you know, I'm sure that black people, people of color feel other tensions as they walk around the United States. But I don't know that they feel that one necessarily, especially they interview black people who have a lot of white friends and they talk about not. They don't ever feel this this way necessarily. So I just find that which very way? interesting. Which way necessarily? What are you talking about? The way of the, like there's some kind of like tension with being around or seeing. Oh, they don't. They say they, know, they don't say that. Yeah, especially if black people who spend a lot of time around white people probably like in the podcast mention not feeling this like sense of tension around white people, but that there's a lot of white people who say they feel this kind of strange tension when they see black people sometimes. That's interesting. For, yeah, it is interesting. That's why I was. That's that's actually why I am recommending this to you right now. It's like, I mean, I don't remember what episode it's in. It might be in like eleven or twelve or something. But it's. Uh, I think it's it's kind of worth the listen. But the other point that I was going to make here is that it's fascinating because I did not feel so. I know exactly the kind of thing you're. I know exactly what you're talking about. Even as somebody who has like, like my best friends. If if I just thought about this yesterday when I was listening to the last episode of this podcast, Bill Batiste. I thought, yeah, my best friends are all are all black. Like if somebody named if somebody was like who. Who are your three best friends? I would go Bill Batiste, St. James Jackson, and probably Josh Odusanya. All three of them are black. Brendan Gay, who's one of my best friends, is half black. And so, and I say that only because, like, I'm citing this, and it's funny because now, like, even doing that makes you sound like you're some kind of racist or something. But I cite that only to say, like, I spend time, like, I spend a significant amount of my social time around people of color, and I still feel that tension. I don't necessarily feel it with them. But I feel, but I feel it, you know. But it exists. Right. But I, I say that only to say now that I've told you this before. But when you're in the, when you're in Europe, when you're in the UK, I do not feel that same tension in That's in the UK. I'm in Scotland doing comedy. I don't feel that way talking to British black people. I think that there's something about this that is uniquely well, let American. Me, let me I, before I forget this. Let me weigh in on what you just said there because I think I got something to say here that I think could be relevant. So I'm hearing this now for however long it's been since you said it. I'll say seven seconds. I heard this nine seconds ago from you. So here's my <laughs> yeah. theory. Here's my theory on why American white people might have that feeling, whereas white people in other countries may not. And it's going to be the exact opposite, I think, of what you think I'm going to say. And that is this. It's because I believe that the vast majority of, of white Americans are not racist. The, I mean, like, I think I, if I had to pick a percentage, I would say 90, 97% are not racist. Now, 3% is not zero, and 3% is a lot of people. So I'm not, to be clear on that. But it's not like it's 40% or even 20% in my experience. So I think the reason that there might be that tension for the, if it, this is used my 97% as if it's correct, even though, of course, I have no way of proving that. The 97% who are not racist or, or no, and who are proud of not being racist. So the people who are in that 97% who have actively, actively gone out of their way to 
show people of color that they are they themselves are not racist. I'm one of those people. I have spent my entire life reaching out to people of, of color, and I've said this before, I'm in college, my freshman year, my best friend, a guy named Courtney Hawkins, was black. My best friend, my freshman year, my second year. He probably I, still is. Uh, no, actually, <laughs> he's not. I, I haven't talked to him since college, or even before the end of college. He moved to a different no, dorm. No, I mean, he's, prob- he's probably still black. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I, probably so, yes. Well, you know, transgender, trans race has to be next. But anyway, so, uh, and then my second year, I lived with a black guy named Charles Nathan Ford, and we had a great relationship. I I would love to see him today. But the point is that I have actively sought out opportunities to show people of color that I'm not racist. Because I I just believe that everyone's better off if everyone gets along. I mean, just it's that is the most common sense perspective I think of that you can have it's just like if we all get along it's better for everybody isn't it what do I gain by by disliking someone because of the way they look I gain nothing I lose something yeah. I lose a potential friendship I lose a potential business opportunity I gain tension that I don't need you know what I mean there's just no reason yep. there's no inherent reason to discriminate so uh, at least for me and so I think the reason that perhaps, I come off as militant as I do in these conversations that we have is because I know who I am and how I feel. This and is very I, important I'm, to you. Yeah. yeah, I'm pissed. I'm fucking pissed off because I know how many people there are out there in the world just like me because they're sure. my friends and I know them. And it's like they similarly take pride in having friends of color. And, and so when we see all this stuff stirred up day after day after day after day after day and we know in our worlds that all this shit being said about white people at least today is not true it isn't and again i'm not saying racism does not exist of course it does i'm not saying there aren't white people who are racist of course there are but i'm i just think that for all this shit to foment like it's fomenting currently. If this had been done 20 years ago or 30 years ago, I I wouldn't say a word because I'd be like, oh yeah, I mean, racism. I mean, they were lynching people not that long ago. You know, if we're talking 20, 30, 40 years ago, but not to, I mean, today, well, yeah. today, today it's just, again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying stuff doesn't still happen, but it there was a time when I think it was culturally accepted among white people that racism was a thing. Didn't mean they were, but they accepted the fact that it was a thing. I think we've moved so far past that in my lifetime that for this stuff to come up now, you know, I, 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 I've been trying to come up with an analogy for this and I haven't come up with a good one yet because, you know, the, the classic one someone might use here would be, this is like telling somebody to use a condom after the baby has been born. For me, it's like telling somebody to use a condom after the kids graduated from college. I mean, we're so far past it now that like the George Floyd incident, Exactly as Sam Harris said in that podcast that I just referenced when he was quoting Van Jones, when Van Jones basically, I'm Mm. I'm summarizing what Van Jones said, but the gist of it was, next time this happens, oh my God, wait till you see what happens then. You know, and and Sam Harris, who again, I want to remind people is a liberal, said that is outrageously unreasonable because it's going to happen again. And in fact, it's, it's so ironic because if you recall, we did that podcast and the next day, there was another then, incident. Yeah, yeah then in Atlanta. Again. Yeah, the next day. I mean, it's just gonna keep. The next day. Keep, I mean, it's just it's it's America, dude. It's just gonna keep. And it's, <coughs> it's not even about America necessarily. It's about it's just human beings and the sheer numbers of them. You know what I mean? And and and, yeah. and and let's be honest. I mean, let's be really candid here. How many people 
have been emboldened and motivated by all the shit that's gone down in terms of militancy and aggression. I mean, let's be honest here, dude. I mean, I know, I know you. I think you're you're far more sensitive about the things you say on this podcast than I am. So I respect that. But for me, sure, I just feel there's an uprising among people who maybe prior to all this shit would have been sort of like, I don't like the way things are. I'm not happy with this, but this is the system. I'm gonna I'm gonna do the best I can, and hopefully things will work out for me. I could see a person like that, who's not a bad person, and that's from their from their perspective and their life experiences. That is a fair and reasonable view of the world. I can see a person like that. They say, oh shit, people are burning shit down and getting away with it day after day after day after day. Fuck it. I'm going to go get some of mine. I could see myself doing that in that same yeah, circumstance. Well, here's the problem. So two things to just... Do you disagree with that? Speak there. No, I, I mean, I don't disagree with it. Okay. And that's, I think, one, I mean, I, I think that, that we are in that situation. Um, I think that one at partial evidence for that is the fact that that one that was already going on and then two i think that there's i mean there's been a historic number of first time gun owners oh, yeah, and purchasers for sure, for sure in the last like 5 months yep like an like a nuts like uh, thousands of people who have purchased a gun for the first time um and it's funny because Colian Noir who's a um uh, gun rights activist. He's a black gun rights activist. Was on Joe Rogan a while ago. I think I mentioned this to you. You like did. He, it's on a podcast we talked about. Yeah, because he was on there talking. Because Joe Rogan had him on because Joe buys and shoots guns and is a is a hunter and yep. a gun rights guy and yep, yep. um all of this. And so it's just fascinating because he basically has Colin on there to talk about the fact that Joe had all these people reaching out and asking, "What should I do?" what should I purchase? How do I own a gun? And so he's calling on in there to talk about it. And Colin Noir is like, yeah, it, this is just a part of America. Like we need to, we need to own that and we need to teach gun safety in school. And I, I suddenly was like, this makes so much, I can't believe I've never thought of that before. Like, and I mean, I could think I could see a whole bunch of liberals completely disagreeing with that, but I think Sam Harris would even agree with it. When the second thing that I want to talk about real, real quick is related to, I'm going to go get mine, all this stuff. This country has been, and I think this is actually listening to the the Seeing White podcast has actually helped, uh, helped me articulate this feeling that I've had for quite a while, which is that this country pursues a very particular brand of capitalism. And it's a very particular brand of capitalism. And I think we are in the end game of that brand of capitalism. I think that it cannot survive. It barely can survive. I don't think it can survive um, coronavirus. We will see. We, we, we will yet see. But I do not believe it can survive what is much the longer. Kind? What is the kind that you're describing? Yeah, the kind that I'm describing, the kind that it is, is this extremely individual focused capitalism. That is, everything is about you, the individual. You're the complete locus of your own destiny and responsibility. And everything is only uh, uh, everything that comes into your life is because of your choices. Everything that is the nature of your life is due to your choices. And everything flows through you, comes from you. You are the locus of our entire economic system. And I think that that... When you hear that, here, here, here's the thing. The listener, and including you, I think, is going to hear that and think, what's the problem with that? That's exactly what I think. Yeah. The problem isn't with it 
per se or vis-a-vis itself. The problem is that we live, human beings are not individuals. I mean, they are, but they are also members of communities. And the choices that you make affect the lives of other people. And let me give you a perfect example. I can decide to build a meth lab in my basement and let's admit, I mean, just on its face, just ideologically, I want to say this because I think you and I actually agree with each other here to begin with, because if, if I build a meth lab in my basement and decide to go sell meth on the street, um, I'm not just putting, I, you know, Hey, what's the big deal? What's the harm? Well, it's I'm, doing, I'm not doing any it's harm illegal. to people. They're, they're making their own choices. Yeah. But I mean, let's just get rid of the idea that there's, there's any legality here. Like what, what's the problem? What's the harm in these choices um, of me doing this and them deciding they want to take the method I'm building and making? Well, the problem is that it fucks with people's brains and heads and chemistry. And also the meth lab could just fucking explode and blow my house up and blow up the houses next to mine. Could be kids in those houses. There could be who knows what. The point that I'm making is that it's like there's a reason we have meth labs that are outlawed. And it's because those choices that you're making infringe and impede on the ability of other people to live fulfilling lives of their own. And I think that there is a lot of things that have been going on in our economic system, in our cultural system, that have been beneficial to individuals but detrimental to communities. And that's been happening for a long time. And part of the reason it's been happening is because it benefits people a, a certain number of people who are in positions of power. I mean, think about, I just said it earlier, like Jeff Bezos made like $30 billion since the beginning of this. Like how, you know, one of the questions that we can ask ourselves is as a world community or as an American community, how much money is too much money? H- how much money is too much for somebody to have? Is, is that even a, is it even possible to have so much money that it becomes harmful to everybody, to everybody, to even the person who has it? Well, is it? let me, let me actually, uh, I might surprise you here. Uh, let me actually agree with you there and let me just extend the conversation. So I actually don't, uh, before you said, oh, I'll go back to the example I gave a minute ago about Jeff Bezos. I was going to use that exact example to say, mm. I can kind of see your point, which is an example I'll give you is Jeff Bezos, because again, how did that guy what is the engine that drives his profit? His The engine that drives his profit is online sales of fucking everything. He sells everything. Yeah. And yep. how many businesses have gone out of business because of that? I mean, I'd like to actually know that number because I'd, I'd be willing to bet you the number is in the millions of small local businesses that no longer exist because I, for example, and I'm, I'm living through this, this is an actual example. Uh, in fact, since we've been on this podcast, I'll, I'll, I'm embarrassed to admit to you that I actually did a little research on this while you were talking. I was listening to you, but I can multitask sometimes. So I'm looking at yep. watches. <laughs> I'm going to buy a new watch. And so I, I've been researching this for months because, you know, it's a it's a, it's a a big decision. It's the last watch I'll ever buy, I'm sure. And I want to make sure I buy the right one. So I'm looking around, and I, I, mean, I, I, I could tell you the prices. Name a watch, I can tell you the price. I can tell you what, what website has the best price for, like, 50 different watches. And yeah. I then went physically, and uh, and this is like the double whammy of the base. Uh, let's call this the Bezos effect for the rest of this conversation. Um, so the downside of the Bezos effect is not only are the odds, 
they're not 100%, but they're close, that I'll end up buying whatever I buy online. Okay, that's probably a 95% chance of happening. But yep. as if that weren't bad enough, I then got in my car and I went to, I've now been to three different places. I've been to a place called Mastercraft Jewelers in located in Livonia, Michigan. I've been to Tapper's Jewelers located in Novi, Michigan. And I've been to, I don't, I can't pronounce the name. It's a place in Ann Arbor, Sherlanderlin or something on Main Street in Ann Arbor to look at sure. watches. Because I don't want to buy something without handling it. You know, I want to see it, feel it, put it on my wrist because, the, you know, watches fit radically differently. You, you just have to physically handle them. I did that in every instance, knowing that there was a 99% chance I would not be buying any of those watches from those people. And as I was doing those things, I felt awful, which is just as an aside, you know, because I'm thinking you're helping me. And I mean, the most time any, any of those people spent with me was like seven minutes. And they're, and they're, you know, they're not doing anything otherwise. Literally, they're just sitting there doing nothing when I walk in. Because, you know, foot yep. traffic in places like that right now are basically oh, near it's zero. Oh, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Nobody's... <laughs> I was the only person in each of those jewelers each time I was there. No one came in the, when I was there. Um, actually, and one of those times I was there for a while. I lied. It wasn't seven minutes. It was probably more like a half an hour. But nobody came in. I was it. Sure. There were like four people yep. there to man, you know, the counters to help. There's nobody there. But anyway, the point you get the point is that those people are expending they're they're hanging on, they're trying to survive economically and they know full well that you know they they've watched their their profits probably decline over the course of years because more and more people are buying more and more things online. So I'm far deep into deeper into that point than I should be, but my point is simply I'm actually agreeing with you. I actually see it. I see I think the yep. point you're making which is the Jeff Bezoses of the world have wreaked havoc on Main Street USA by creating a better way to sell certain items, which happens to be most items. And that's just put a lot of people out of business. So for a moment, and I'm actually very surprised at myself that I'm willing to say this publicly, Mm. but I am. I see your point, kind of. I do. I really do. But now here's where I was ultimately going with this. So I want to concede that before I make my next point. My next point is this. Okay, I'll agree with you. What now? What the, what's the practical next step? Because here's what I see as, as most logically the thing that would happen is the government decides exactly when you said how much money is enough money. The government decides because who, the, who else is going to do it? I mean, it's not going to – Jeff Bezos isn't going to say, you know what, $30 billion you know, windfall in a month, that's ridiculous. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throttle my own business activities because that will never happen. So – Who's going to make that decision? Government will make that decision. And then government, what's government? Government's just people. People with human biases and political relationships. And, you know, you can finish that thought in terms of whatever that person or that body or that board or that, you know, that committee comes up with in terms of what's enough money. That's going to be politically motivated, driven. The decision will be political in nature. And whatever comes down, it'll favor somebody specifically. And even more important, forget, forget I even said that. The more important thing is, who, who is to determine these things? Who's judge and jury? Because I would rather live with the Bezos situation knowing that what I just said, that you, know, that you led me to, is true, that lots of people were harmed by that. I would rather have that simply because I, I would rather have the unfettered playing field 
and feel like if I am smart enough to play that game and win, that nobody's going to hamstring me along the way. Because if if somebody has the ability to come in and say, well, that business is making too much money, because right now we're, we are living through this exact point that I'm making as we speak, specifically within the context of the response to corona, in terms of these businesses can be open, but these can't. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's exactly the kind of thing that would happen. And are you enjoying that aspect of the shutdown? That I can't go to the gym, but I can go to a protest. I can't go to church, but I can go to this restaurant as long as it serves these kinds of foods. I mean, you know, it's it's crazy, and that's what we're always going to get from the government. So my point, you get my point, which is just, I would rather have the no rules or you know or the existing rules rather than new rules created by somebody and the somebody's going to be the government because i mean do you i mean do you think government decision making in general is good yeah i think that it can be really i mean this is where you and i disagree is because it's like i one i mean what you're describing in terms of who is going to do that and how is it going to get done i mean that's just that's politics it's just who gets what is is yeah. what politics is right and i think that's one you think that's this. preferable think this, to free market? Yes, I do. I think it's way better than a wide open free market. I think that a wide open free market is I don't I don't think anybody really actually wants that. I mean oh, the way that Warren Buffett more, describes oh. it is he's like the way that Warren Buffett describes it is imagine he goes uh, having regulations on the marketplace is like having rules in your life. Like if you just decided to wake up tomorrow and go, "You know what? I'm not going to have any rules in my life anymore. I'm going to do anything I want that makes me feel good." I'm going to go shoot heroin. I'm going to stay up all night. He's like, your life would fall apart pretty quickly um, if that was the case. And I think that there's, while that isn't in a perfect, was while it's not a perfect analogy. No, I think it's a terrible it's actually, analogy, actually. It's not, I don't think it's a terrible analogy. I, I think it's he's extreme. got a, he it's has too a extreme. point. It's too extreme. It's, it, but the point that he makes is that part of the reason things can move ahead copacetically is because of regulation. And I think that we we don't want I mean, I, again, this is th something that you should listen to Daniel Markovitz, who I've mentioned before, yeah, talk yeah, yeah. about, right. which is there is a you know, there's a qualitative difference in the nature of somebody having billions of dollars in a free market marketplace that's unregulated than having political power exist to check that. Like there is a qualitative difference between your choices and Jeff Bezos's choices. That's the case. And I and I think that there needs to be a political body to check that. I mean, all the problems you're mentioning are I don't disagree that those exist. I think that I think that that's real. And I, I don't know if there's a good solution for it. But I also don't think that throwing up your hands and going, you know what, I just I guess we can't do anything. Let's leave it up to people to make their own choices is it, I don't think is a great solution either, especially when it's not great on mass, so the choices of others you know, really affect. It's similarly, it comes to like, I mean, your point with regarding like decisions related to like COVID-19 and, and masks and which places are open and which are closed and what those regulations are is it's, it's like none of them are perfect. I completely agree with that. And they're all very frustrating, but that's just an extension of the same dance. It's like, you know, I mean, that goes back to the concept of social contract from the beginning of you know, Western thought in this idea is like, look, it just you're giving up some freedom of choice in order to live in a more secure social situation and secure, meaning broadly secure, not just your 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 physical immediate safety. But I mean, secure like you don't have to go to bed wondering if 
garbage is going to be picked up this month or if right. you know people pe- you know people are going to destroy the the water treatment facility or whatever you know what i mean right so i don't know i mean i think that i see your points on all of these things i just think yeah we need that stuff and i mean maybe this boils down partially to the generational differences we were talking about earlier like i'm part millennial thinking like yeah we should it's we should do this like people should be working and all this kind of stuff it just feels very aspirational you know for for people my age to believe that we ought to move into we can improve government we can improve the world through government you know versus i think a lot of gen x and even late boomer feelings is like yeah i saw people try to improve the world with government when i was younger and it fucked up and didn't work out at all and then uh, Reagan came along and got rid of that, and then everything improved. Like I think that that's probably yeah. a reasonable yeah. outlook. That's given exactly your what experience. I think. That's exactly what I think. And and I just think that we've strayed so far from, you know, the the founding principles of this country, in terms of you know the least possible amount of government. We've we've moved so far away from that, and I've never lost that perspective. You know, I don't know where I learned that. But it was just ingrained in me from a young age. It just made sense to me. Like I really like that idea of freedom. I want I want maximum freedom. That's why you know that's why I'm so happy to have been born in this country because there's no freer country on the planet. I don't think in terms of now, I can. Do, I don't know. You could you can make you can make beer in your basement in France and sell it on a farmer's market on Saturday, but you cannot do that in the United States. All right. Well, again, you can always find an exception. But again, that, that's a government. That's the government interference that shouldn't be there. So that's you're making my yeah, point no, for me. Yeah, no, I mean, you and I are agree agree on that point for sure. You know that I just wish that there were, the, if it were up to me, the rules that would exist would be basically there should we shouldn't need anything more than the golden rule: do unto others mm-hmm. as the, as you'd have them do unto you. If, if we could actually enforce that somehow, that would be pretty awesome. But of course, that's not realistic because if human nature being what it is. And so now we're left with just, you know, again, for me, it's, to me, this is really a binary, simple thing. And I've said it, but just to repeat it, it is either you you err in the direction of too much freedom or you err in the direction of too much government. And I think in the long run, in most situations, there always you can always come up with a with an exception. I, I, and I admit that. But I think in the long run, for to, the totality of civilization for the totality of people it's better off with less regulation less oversight not not less oversight but i mean you just more ability to do whatever you want within reason like the meth lab example that should be illegal that should not be allowed that that crosses the line i understand i'm by saying that i'm just admitting that we do need some rules somewhere and i do admit that but i think they should be the bare minimum of rules and i think that to extend it to ever even contemplate a thought like, well, Jeff Bezos made too much money. We better fucking do something about that. Even though I can completely see, and I, I made the argument myself a minute ago about, yeah, I see all the businesses that have died because of him and his idea, but I still, even though I don't like it, I tip my hat to that guy for seeing an opportunity and seizing it and making a making billions off it. I mean, if you had a great idea like that and you, know, you went and made a billions off it, I would be like, Good for him. Good for him. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I think that here, here's where I, here's where I think we've ended up in this conversation. First of all, this is a really good one that we have. Um, this is like it's gone a bunch of places, but I think yeah. we're in a good. I think I think I can reasonably conclude this by saying, were there to be? Let me just ask you this question: Were there? Were you to see? Were you to see? Um, let's say policy that existed or was proposed to try and regulate. I don't know. Let's say a wealth creation or whatever. Like let's say it was like. Nobody can have, you know, nobody can have more than a hundred billion dollars or something. I don't know what it is. Whatever. I don't know what it would be, but the, I, it wouldn't be that one. Just to be clear. <laughs> okay. But whatever it was, were you to see some like reasonable wealth or creation or wealth uh, accumulation legislation or policy that attempted to handle the problem of individual? success and responsibility and accountability versus a community relationship, w would you be willing to support it or consider it? Because I, I get the feeling that what I hear in what you're saying is, I don't see any good solutions and I don't want to take a bad solution, which I think is a reasonable position. Yeah, actually. that kind of is, that, that's, a, uh, that's a good summation, I believe, of how I feel. I would be, I would be probably opposed to that, and here's why. Not because not because I categorically reject it on its face, but rather because of my belief that politics is inherent in every situation on that level. So what would so that you could come up with some sort of legislation that actually might make sense, but I just know the backroom deals that would be made to circumvent it. So that anybody who had accumulated that much wealth has politicians in their pocket. That's just a given. That's just a fucking given. So they would call it. I mean, how do you think? How do you think Jeff Epstein avoided? Like, have you watched the whole Epstein thing on Netflix? Oh yeah, you bet. Okay. Now I haven't, so I want to be clear about that. But I've watched like four episodes, I think. When when you see this laid out the way that it was presented, and I'm just taking on its face that it's reasonably accurate in terms of, you know, the number of incidents, the number of complaints, the number of people who who went to the police and the FBI, who were deemed credible. And just the way that it all played out, like nobody nobody could have avoided jail as long as he did. And when he was finally charged with something, the way, you know, like 18 months of whatever that was, where he was like 12 hours at home, and then he, he just stopped observing it at all and was seen like in Europe and shit, you know, while he was supposed to be in jail. It's, oh yeah, we're supposed to be on house arrest. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like okay, so how does that happen? That happens because of the man's wealth and you know and the extra angle of pedophile island, which you won't even touch that. But my point is, when you when you live at that level, you just pick up the phone and you call Bill or Hillary or whoever you call, and the problem gets taken care of. So hey, you see this new legislation that's going to try to limit my wealth? I trust. You're going to take care of that, and of course, I'll continue to support your candidacy from this point forward. So that you, you know, you wire that dude ten million to protect your thirty billion, and and that's the way that goes down. So because I know that, that I see all of this as just an exercise on the part of people who just don't understand the reality of politics and life and human nature. So I just see it as much ado about nothing because it it would just create another level of corruption rather than solving anything. And so I know I know how I know how jaded that sounds. I know how 
how negative that sounds. As I say it, I don't think I don't view it as negative. I view it as practical, and there's a difference. This is just the way it works in the real world versus what's on paper and what what we can get behind as a cause. And so mm. I'm just trying to be practical and realistic about human nature. And so I don't think anything like that would ever would ever be successful because the people that have that kind of money would find a way around the rule. They would just come up with stuff. And so, sure. you know, and I know that I know that if you're young and idealistic and I've watched you and I've said this to you before. I've watched you change as you've as you've aged and matured. I mean, we've been talking about issues like this for a lot of years. I mean, I a don't long know, time. I don't yeah. know how many years, but let's say at least 10 on and off. Yep. And and you know, with a, a high level of regularity and intensity. I mean, there's nobody I discuss these issues with like I do with you. I mean, yeah, do, same. I, do I have these conversations with other people? Of course I do, but I have them with you consistently. And so that that's different. And so I've watched you change. And it's not like you're radically different than you were, but you are different. And I would I would uh, I would call it simple maturity and life experience. You go through enough work experiences where you got a good boss, a bad boss, you have a bad job, a good job, you get fucked, you get some nice bonus, you get a great job, the the ownership changes and you're out the door. I mean, you live through enough enough of those types of life traumas, and it just sort of moves you in a certain direction. And it always seems to move people in the direction. People, I don't ever see people move from conservative to liberal unless they move to the West Coast. And I'm not being facetious. Yeah, unless, they move to, unless they move to the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, then it happens to everybody. <laughs> Other than that, the only moves I ever see are people who go from starting, I was, I do, I know I've told you this, but I mean, when I was 18, I was, I considered myself liberal. I was, you know, I was liberal. I, I had, I didn't identify as a conservative at all. Then I just started having life experience and moving me and moving me, and now I find myself, you know, where I am now, which I, which you probably would label as, you know, alt right. Like he doesn't actually have. No, I don't think a, I don't think you're all right. Oh, don't you? you don't? I, I don't think you're all right. What do you think? I, I think am? that um, I I don't know. I think that you. It's funny because I think that you have. So for uh, I just uh, asked a couple of things. One is that I hope that. All, uh, however well informed and practical your worldview is, it the reality is not as cynical as I think the what you inform. Even though I I I think you're right, I think the it does work that way. I just think that it's like Winston Churchill said: the you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after every other option has run out. Like I think that we're <laughs> rapidly approaching a situation in which we just really don't have any other options. Like there's. There's going to have to be some fundamental changes in the way that we govern and think about ourselves as a country, or the whole thing is going to kind of fall apart. I, I think that we're like, t 20 years seems too too far away for that to happen. You know what I mean? <laughs> See, and, and I hear that, and, I, and I'm and i not trying to, I, I respect the, I respect you, I respect your points of view, but I look at that and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, this this the country had never been in better shape economically. It wasn't like, you know, again, what we learned from Sam Harris in terms of the reality of the police killings and all that and how that was spun and manufactured. I mean, it wasn't real. It wasn't real. So all this crisis, you air quote crisis, it, it, it isn't a crisis. But yet so many people have been convinced that it is that we're going to throw away uh, or not, maybe not throw away, but we're having these conversations at a time when, in my opinion, has no sense. Makes no sense to be having them now. Like I said before, the time to have these conversations was twenty or thirty years ago, not now. 
And and I know you might say well, you I, might respond to that yeah. by saying it's you know never too late to do the right thing. But here I've been I've been trying not to say what I'm going to say now. I was trying to get through this whole conversation without saying this because I don't know how we end on this point, or because when I say this, you're going to want to respond to it as you should. Uh, and maybe we'll end on this, and maybe we'll pick this up in the next podcast. But this thought that I did not want to say out loud, or at least not in this conversation, but I'm gonna, is here's what I really think is going to be the outcome of all of this that shit that's happening right now. To repeat what I said before, throughout the course of my life, I've watched racism decline, 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 decline. Shit happened along the way, but for the most part, it was all headed in a good direction. Racial tensions were at an all-time low. And again, we can skip the whole argument about why that changed, but you know, my short answer is Obama came in and started doing things that I, lots of people thought, including me, were based on race when he should have come in and just done what was best for Americans. He started doing things which was best for, quite frankly, more Muslims than for blacks, but that's, that's a conversation for another day. My, mm. point, my point I'm getting to here is the end of all of this shit that's going down right now is the creation of actual racism. And mm. so when I see all these people who have been whipped into a frenzy based on, in my opinion, false evidence or, or evidence that wasn't nearly as bad as they were led to believe, and now there's all this activism and violence and protesting and looting and rioting, and the people, the 97% that I referred to earlier are people who were like, what the fuck's going on here? I've spent my whole life actively not being a racist. I mean, this was actually part of my MO. This was part of my identity to myself. I am not a racist. Yeah. I'm proud yeah. that I, I, I like showing people, I like showing other white people how not racist I am. I will walk up to a random person who's a different ethnicity and just strike up a conversation. I want them to see there are a lot. There are people like me. There are lots of us. We 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 mean you no harm. We like you. We want you to. We want everybody to live in, in happiness and harmony. We really sincerely do. We stand back and look at all this and say, "What the fuck is this shit?" I spent my whole life proving to you that's not who we are, and now you're going to burn down cities. I mean, so I can just feel. I can just feel this from the things I see people writing on Facebook. You know, people that I know, they're, they're just like, oh, this isn't, I, I can't stand for this. I cannot stand for, this cannot happen. How much more of this shit can go down? And implicit in a lot of those comments, not said explicitly, I can just feel it. I can feel the rise of, you know, we better do something about this. We need to do something about this, right? I mean, we can't let this shit go on. And again, nobody's saying that that explicitly i want to be clear but i can feel it and my fear is that you know there'll be a, like if they don't rein in those situations like in portland i mean if that situation is absolutely out of control and by the way i will share that facebook um post that you couldn't access i think the reason you couldn't access this is because it's probably shared with just her friends which i'm mm -hmm. one of but i will i want you to read this and i'm referring to a, a facebook thread that was started by a friend of mine who lives in portland and um, the, the, the super short version of this is that this woman wrote this post, and she's talking about, can you believe this fascism that's going down in Portland? Trump is sending in these federal agents, and this is, this is, the, this is how Nazi Germany—and I'm summarizing. This is how Nazi Germany started, you know, all that rhetoric. 
And so I jumped into that conversation and basically said, you know, good point. We should just stand back and let a beautiful city like Portland be burned to the ground because local leadership won't do shit about it. And you can imagine how that went over. Mm. And I want you to see the whole thing because it, it was just amazing how it went back and forth. And I have friends that live in Portland who are, you know, who are, are conservatives and trying to make a difference like in a really constructive way, in a very positive, constructive way. And they've been doing this for a while. And one of them even had the courage, get this, his name is Eric Post. He had the courage to take an American flag down at like noon, this is maybe like 10 days ago, um, to a, a place where a statue had been torn down. And he wanted to plant the flag where the statue had been. And he wanted it to be completely peaceful you know, that he was very clear in the messaging he had on Facebook. He was inviting people to go with him. I want to, we want to show these people that we're, oh, people, we're, people probably, people probably wanted to attack him. Well, yeah. And they didn't attack him to be clear. He was not attacked, but uh, you know, there was a lots of like, he apologized in advance because he had his video on his page of this and he apologized in advance about all the shit that you would hear in the background, people yelling at him, but he was not attacked to back to my real point is that I fear that what's going to ultimately come out of this is that the people who are rising up trying to thinking and 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 perhaps well-intentioned in their in their efforts even though you know burning shit down whatever um I know there's lots of people that that thought doesn't apply to so I want to be clear I'm not saying everybody's an arsonist or a writer I know that but the point is those people who are burning shit down and writing are on the side of those people. You know, that's one contingent. And so they're being painted unfairly, perhaps, as being part of that violent group. And I don't mm. think that, I, don't, I just don't think anything taken by force is gonna last because the, re, the hard reality of all this is this is the punchline and I'll quit. The punchline of this, I'm afraid this is gonna create ris, racism, is that when the silent majority wakes up or actually starts to take action, all you got to do is look at the, the hard numbers of how many of those people are there versus how many of those people are there. You know, <laughs> the numbers are radically out of balance. And so if there ever was actual civil unrest, it's not going to end well for the people who are being the most outspoken at the moment. And I don't want that. I want to be really clear. I do not want that under any circumstance because we all lose if that happens. I'm just saying if it gets to that point, I think it's pretty clear how that ends. And that just won't, there'll be no gain. There'll be only loss. And I think that's why all this violence has to stop. The only thing that's going to be gained, or the only way there'll be effective change effectuated is via nonviolence. And I know, I know what you're going to say or what you want to say, which is, hey, dude, you got to understand these people have been trying to do it the right way forever. It's not working. This is all they had left at their, at their this is all that they could do. I mean, didn't you didn't didn't you think that just now? I mean, I think I think a plausible argument is well, when Colin Kaepernick tried to do it, the vice president walked out and spent a bunch of airtime talking. You know, people freaked out. So, I mean, I think there's a reasonable argument to be made that it's like, look, when when people who care about these things try to do it peaceful, peacefully, they get attacked. I'd say do more of not it. paid attention to. I mean, if that, I mean, if, if that's all we're going to use as the example of what was tried before, and I'm, I'm not. I don't mean to insult you. I'm no, not it's just to, one example. I know, but uh, but I okay, fair enough intellectually. But I'm just saying, I, I I just don't think anything that involves violence is going to be effective long term. 
It might be effective short term. It might be effective in terms of whipping people into a frenzy of fear. Oh, I'll support Black Lives Matter. I'll donate to that because I don't, you know, I don't want to be viewed as a racist and I don't want my house burned down. But I believe that a lot of those people are doing that very insincerely. They're doing it just because of virtue signaling and peer pressure and all that shit. They don't really believe in it. And that's not true for everyone. I'm sure lots of people really do believe in it. I'm saying I'm pretty confident a lot of them don't, but they're acting like they do. And I think that just as exactly when Trump was elected, you know, in 2016, and when the polls showed there was a 98% chance he was going to lose. That was the actual number. So people are not truthful in terms of the, the way they act in public versus what they really think privately. Lots of them. So I just mm -hmm. think that I think that it's not going to end well if it continues on in this in this vein. And uh, even though I do intellectually understand the point that at a certain point, if you have nothing left but that violence as an option, I guess I can sort of get it. But I just think that it's anything you gain is going to be short-lived. It's going to be short-lived. It'll be reversed or worse yet. It'll just be destroyed. And you'll end up worse off than you started. That's what I fear. That's what I really yeah, fear. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is a – we don't have time to get to no, parse through everything said. that you yeah. just said because I just – there's a lot there. Yeah, but there is. we should – this may be a good setup to go into the next one yeah, of these. Yeah, let's I do think, that. Um, and you'll have some time to I give think that you some should thought. Check, yeah, I think you should check out um, the – the Seeing White podcast, actually, which is, uh, like I said, surprisingly better than I thought it was going to be. Why don't I was you give the, for... give the details on that again? Uh, the particulars yeah, it's, it's from Seen it. on Radio. S-C-E-N-E -E on Radio is the podcast. Okay. And it, it's like 14 parts, and it was released in 2017, so you got to kind of go back in time a little bit. But it really was much better than I thought it would be. I mean, it's not like life-changing. I don't think it's like you're not going to listen to it and be like, I'm a whole different person. But right. it was pretty. Fa it was really fascinating to, to listen to, honestly. And there was a lot of stuff in there that I hadn't really considered but was, uh, you know, helped, I think, inform, you know, the way that I've thought about this. Yeah, that's but, interesting. Like, We'll just have to we'll have to put a pin in this for now, because uh, for time reasons. All right, dude. Well, uh, let's uh, everyone who's still listening. We really appreciate you listening to to Ung Few very much. We really do, very sincerely. We uh, we know that this uh, wouldn't you know we don't do this to make money. Uh, just to be clear, we do this because we're we're interested in sharing our perspectives with people. You know, hoping that we can make you think occasionally make you laugh. But in any event, we do appreciate your, your support and the positive comments we receive from many of you well, week to week. And we just wish you the best in these tumultuous times. And we look forward to talking to you again in the very near future. Sign us off. Peace, everybody. Stay healthy. Later. Later.